Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. In this episode, we've got an excellent interview with Mike Snyder. He's the commander of one of the largest World War II Soviet reenactment units in the United States. He's got tons of experience with World War II reenacting and with running a unit. Lots of great points in this episode, so stick around. Unfortunately, Lassa had a scheduling problem. He couldn't make it here for this episode. We're going to miss him. The good news is that I'm excited to have a special guest in the studio with me today. Uh, We are going to be talking to Mike Snyder, who is the commander of the World War II Soviet reenactment group that I'm also in. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the program, Mike. Uh, Great to be here, Chris. So uh, I guess for people who don't know who you are, why don't you just... um, kind of give a little introduction and explain how you got started in World War II reenacting. Uh, I got started in the hobby and as near as I can figure about 2002 in uh, the third Panzer Grenadiers. I started actually as a German reenactor and uh, the reason it led to Soviet is we had a few tacticals against Soviet reenactors. They were very undermanned and uh, myself and another gentleman decided well why don't we put together a Soviet kit just so we can uh, round out the numbers a little better. That's cool. Why did you uh, you get started in, like, German reenacting to begin with? Uh, I've always had an interest in tanks, and uh, one day I was just doing a web search of uh, Panzers and stumbled upon the uh, third Panzer Grenadiers website and uh, saw they had an event coming up and decided to drive to Tallinn, Mass., not knowing that it was a closed event, but the uh, reenactors that were in camp welcomed me to their camp and treated me real well that day, and uh, the rest is history. That's really cool. You had uh, been a tanker in the in the army or whatever, right? Yes. That's cool. Uh, so you know that that probably was part of how you got interested. I mean, were you interested in tanks before you were in the army, even? Oh yeah, I've always uh, you know loved the tanks. Was interested in my teens, and you know then I joined in the the armor uh, when I was old enough, and then after I got out. Uh, Part of the thing that drew me to reenacting once I stumbled upon it was the fact I missed uh, the camaraderie aspect of the military and missed uh, certain parts of the military life. So reenacting seemed like a good fit for me. Do you think that you get out of you get that out of reenacting? Actually, I do. Uh, yeah, I've made some uh, really good friends in reenacting. Friends that I know that even when I do leave the hobby, will still be friends. That's cool. So when you started going to uh, to Eastern Front events you know years ago when you were still doing german what were those what were those reenactment events like uh actually a lot of them were very small that's what struck me uh first off is i think the first event i ever did against the soviets there was only like six or seven soviets maybe 20 plus germans and i thought oh this is gonna suck so bad i mean they're so outnumbered but all day long they harassed they attacked they were aggressive and it really impressed me and that's what uh made me and my friend decide, well, why don't we put together a Soviet kit so we can, you know, help these guys out a little more, and, you know, the rest is, I guess, kind of history as far as uh, then we decided, well, why don't we start our own little group? Uh, I remember I, I went to one of those events as Russian back then, probably around 2000 and 
two or something, and there were no real Soviet units that I was aware of at that time. It was just like individual Soviet reenactors with all different impressions. Some other Eastern Front type impressions came. Oh, yeah. It was uh, definitely a mess, and their kit was terrible. I mean, and the one group that was somewhat organized, there were six or seven of them, called themselves the Caught-Off Guards, and their kit was all over the place. Cures of pouches were the norm. You know, bad uniforms. It definitely was an area that needed to be improved, and that was another big part of the reason we decided to start our own group is we wanted to see Soviet reenacting improve itself and become more like the German reenacting groups that were in the area. My kit, my Soviet kit back then, my first Soviet kit was absolutely terrible. You know, I had <laughs> one of those... Uh, I don't know what what are they there there's some like Dutch helmet or something like that. Oh, a Czech helmet. Czech, Czech helmets helmet. was, was the norm. Czech the leather chin strap, leather line, German style liner. Yeah. Everybody wore them. Cares of pouches yeah. since everybody got them with the rifles and yeah, it was terrible. West East German jack boots. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's what my kit was like and then lots of pieces of reproduction German stuff cuz there's oh, yeah. no reproduction soviet stuff you know? no back it was yeah the back pocketed then gym too because that's all that you could get yeah back then it was definitely hard to get stuff and uh like trident and collect russia were the two main sources for getting soviet kit and a lot of their stuff wasn't the greatest sure there was that other website too uh oh front of russia you front of russia yes. yeah where you had to like send the money western union yes and then maybe you got it you know what i mean yeah and then you he would always throw in free stuff usually that some bellamoro cigarettes and <laughs> yeah he, he was actually wasn't bad to deal with and then he just disappeared <laughs> yeah that's true soviet was kind of like the almost like the wild west oh yeah the two oh, reenacting yeah. <laughs> yeah when we when we started uh we probably partied a little too hard or we got a bad reputation well, I wouldn't say bad reputation but we were very friendly with other every other group and I think we tried to win over friends with alcohol at the time and it, it worked <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I shouldn't make any apologies for it but we weren't as big on authenticity in the early days as we are now well I remember the, one of the times in the early days going over to your camp on like a Saturday morning after a Friday night of drinking, and there was one empty bottle of vodka on the ground or on the table for every member of your group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that was definitely the norm, and uh, we've gotten away from that, uh, hence the part of the reason for the name change, or the unit change, I should say, uh, a few years back. We wanted to uh, escape our early, early years and improve the unit and that was a big part of the reason for the unit change to the 26. Yeah, for, for people who don't know, that when the unit started it was called the 3rd Rifle Division. Yes, and we took that name partly because the two founding members of uh, the 3rd Rifle Division all both belonged to the 3rd Panzergrenadier Division and everything we learned from reenact about reenacting was from members of the 3rd Panzergrenadiers, so it was kind of a paying homage to them and you know for being good to us all the years that we were with them but of course eventually it kind of came out that you know the real third rifle division was what they were in manchuria yes or they only served in the far east against the uh, japanese late in the war so it definitely wasn't a fit for what we wanted and you know more people were getting into the paperwork aspects of it and ids and the 3rd Rifle Division really didn't have much of a unit history. And the 26th Rifle had, you know, as far as Soviet unit go, 
a very good history, easily tracked. They had many different subunits that fit what we were trying to do, and also for the people who wanted to do paperwork things, it fit better. Sure. Let's circle back a little bit to when you started the group. Like, how many other people were there with you when you started? Oh, when we started the group, it was myself and uh, two other gentlemen. That was it. Three and, people. And then a few weeks after we started, another guy who had been a long-time reenactor joined, and that was what really started giving us some credibility is when people saw an established reenactor join our group that was a well-liked reenactor. They kind of thought, well, geez, these guys can't be so bad. So that's when our numbers started improving. Well, for people who don't know, the unit is a lot more than four people now, right? Oh, yeah. we uh, Well, on paper, we've probably got 50. I mean, at a normal tactical, we'll average, you know, right around 20 people. Displays, you know, anywhere from 6 to 12. Yeah, 20 people at a tactical is pretty huge. Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, definitely uh, a lot more than I ever envisioned when I started the group. I really just wanted to field a squad, and it's definitely grown further than I anticipated. Uh, At times, it can be a headache. You know, I liken it to chasing cats, but... Sure. Thinking about it now, uh, the 26th is probably the largest World War II reenactment unit in this region, I think. I mean, I know there are some there are some GI units that in theory might be bigger, but in terms of active units that I see at events, the 26th is the biggest. Yeah, I've uh, been told that. I really haven't uh, looked into it myself, and I don't want to seem like one of those types to puff my chest out. I mean, if we are the biggest, great. If we're not, you know, it's not something I worry about or think about much. Yeah, if you, I, I, I get that. If you're not the biggest, though, you, you're, you're definitely up right up there with the biggest of the, the regional groups, for sure, which is crazy for something where, as you say, started off as just a total niche, oh, yeah. sort of a side impression with maybe seven people showing up at the one annual event with, oh, yeah, in which we were able to do it. Definitely not lost on me uh, how, how far it's gone above and beyond what I ever anticipated. And uh, it just shows, you know, you get the right people and... You know, people that are into it and, and want to see things improve, that it's going to draw other people to it. How? What is it that you think was like kind of the secret of your success that helped your unit to grow over time? Uh, the one thing is that I noticed with some other units is they were very standoffish. You never saw when I did German, the Germans and the GIs seldom if ever hung out. I and mean, you'd see one or two, but you'd never see the GIs come over and visit the German camp or vice versa. And when we started the tw- you know the third rifle back then, I said, you know, I want to change that. I, I, wa- I want to be friendly with all the reenactors. You never know what doors the- that can open by being friendly to other groups. And it's definitely paid dividends. I mean, we've been good friends with the uh, Canadian Black Watch. And people might think, well, why would you even want to be friends with them? You're never going to see them on the field. But they were like-minded guys. We really liked them. And as it turned out, uh, we gained a bunch of members through them, and a bunch of our members also joined their group. That's one of the other things I don't discourage is uh, people doing other World War II impressions. I mean, I know there's other groups that if you're in their unit, that's the only impression you can do if, for World War II. If you try to join other units, you know, they'll kick you out, and I've never understood that. That seems like you're cutting off your nose in spite of your face. Sure. I was just having a conversation with another reenactor about that even just this morning. You know, every unit has its own culture and 
some units really are demanding of their members this like loyalty you can't be in any other unit but you think that allowing people to do other impressions has helped oh it's definitely helped i mean like i said our friendship with the canadian black watch i never ever envisioned it but we used to do uh tacticals at the newville site and they have a bunker on the newville site and anybody that's been there knows it's hard to get access to a lot of those bunkers and via our friendship with them it gained us access to that bunker so it opened a door that would not have been open to us by being standoffish and not being friendly with these guys i mean that wasn't my end game as to well we'll be friends with these guys so we can get access to their bunker it just worked out that way and it's just always paid dividends by being friendly i mean i look at it as like our two groups is if we hadn't been friendly with you guys i mean we've got many members that are interchanged between the two units and I, I like that, and it doesn't bother me when I see guys that are part of my unit fielding against us. You know, it's whatever they want to do. I mean, you know, people should have the choice to do what they want. I agree. Yeah, the only thing I ever ask of my guys is is that when they're with an event, when they're at an event with us, that they're like all in for what we're doing. Exactly, and I totally agree with that. And the thing is, you know, after the battle, you know, we usually see you guys in our camp, or we'll be in your camp, and. That's the way it should be. I mean, I see too many reenactors at events, the battle ends, and they can't wait to run to their car and leave. And for me, I want to hang with the people I enjoy being with. So, That's one of the things I really like about the 26th is that, you know, people get to the event as soon as you can. Oh, yeah. And stay at the event until it's time for everybody to depart. Exactly. I mean, and usually afterwards, and you know this is, you know, a lot of times we always meet up and go to breakfast or whatever. And, you know, it's one of those things people don't want to go away from each other. It's like, and that's the way it should be in my eyes. You shouldn't be in a hurry to get away from everybody. It's like, you know, I, I look forward to events and most of us drive a good ways to get to these events. Why be in such a hurry to leave it? Sure. I mean, I know some people, right, they have to work or whatever. Oh, yeah. I totally no, get, I get that. that. But, but, yeah, I think some people just, you know, I don't know, they... A lot of there are whole units that I see that just do events solely as a day trip, local yeah, events. And I've never ever understood that. I like I, like you said, I I get it if you've got a work conflict or something like that or something personal coming up. But if that's the norm, you're always doing that. Then I I, I really don't get why you're in this hobby. <laughs> Where do you think the majority of your recruits like came from? Is there one kind of stream of recruits that has been more productive than, than other sources, or is it just all different reasons people come to the group? Uh, if I had to pinpoint, I would say friends of friends. As, the, as we've grown, more people have uh, come to know who we are, and you know, guys that are in the group or just know somebody that might be interested in Soviet, you know, point them to us. So. It's worked out very well. I mean, we've done displays. I mean, everybody does displays, but I really haven't seen that many come out of displays. We've had a few, but for the most part, I would have to say it's, you know, people referring people to us. Something that you've done that I think is really cool is you guys now sort of have like a parallel, you know, unit that's in a different yes. place. Yep. How, uh, did, how did that come about? Yeah, I, well, it was kind of inspired by SR. I know you guys have a units that you're affiliated with in Europe and elsewhere and uh, you know I was approached a while back by a a gentleman out in Ohio wanting to start his own Soviet unit and he really didn't have any knowledge of Soviet he didn't have any kit you know he didn't have the loner gear 
and I suggested to him, well, rather than starting your, you can start your own group. I said, but why not become a regiment of us? I said, you still have control over the unit and what you want to do. I said, you wear our name, but you're part a regiment of us. And I said, in any unit or any event you're at, we'll support you with whatever gear and you know equipment you need. And it's actually been very beneficial to both groups. I mean, the guy that's in command of that unit. Uh, this really nice guy. He brings a lot to the table, and I definitely think it's worked for both groups. Sure. And it also gives more clout. I mean, when a, a lot of everybody knows in reenacting, there's kind of a pecking order. You show up to a, an event with three guys, and some of the bigger groups are going to try to push you around and dictate to you how things are going to work. But you know, when we show up as the 26, generally, I mean, I was told that that the last Stalingrad, we were the biggest single unit, Soviet-wise, which, you know, I didn't realize and didn't give two thoughts to. But, you know, it makes people give you a little more respect and, you know, gives you a little more clout, which isn't a bad thing at times. No, it's, it's cool to hear you talk about clout in terms of, like, real-life experiences at reenactment because... A lot of times when people are talking about reenactment clout, they're talking about like online stuff that doesn't actually mean anything or matter. Yeah, yeah, I, that's one thing I've never, I see all the flame wars that uh, happen online and I don't participate in them. And that's the one big rule in my group is I don't ever want to see a member of my group degrading anybody else or you know putting somebody down, be it online or in person. I have zero tolerance for that. It goes nowhere good for the hobby. I, I want to see the hobby grow, and I want to get along with people. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that I like everybody in the hobby. There's people I don't like, but you don't know who I don't like because I don't make it public. And in my eyes, you shouldn't. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's cool because, you know, you've got this uh, large group. Uh, like you mentioned, you guys were the biggest single Soviet unit at the last Stalingrad event, which was one of the biggest... Uh, Eastern Front reenactment events probably that ever happened and yet um, you know you don't participate on uh, the the acrimonious debates that happen on the internet you don't do like the internet online social media hobby drama stuff at all no it's just uh, you know there's enough drama in real life and especially when people get political and all that it's like you know what I do this hobby for enjoyment I don't find fighting with other people be it online or in person Where's the fun in that? It's just life's too short for that crap. I think this strategy is part of why you're like one of the only reenactors I can think of where I can't think of other reenactors that like don't like you. Yeah, I, I, I always tried to be that person that, you know, I, I guarantee you there's somebody out there that doesn't like me. And you know what? Hey, I get it. <laughs> I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but you know what? I, I try to get along with everybody. And, you know, that. And that's the other thing I've noticed, especially in Soviet reenacting, there was flame wars going on about age groups, you know, the millennials versus the uh, boomers, and it just got out of hand, and I saw that, and it's, it just makes me shake my head, and it, you shouldn't be arguing and fighting over, you know, ages. Yeah, that's some weird stuff happens <laughs> on the internet. Um, so you mentioned a, a while ago... Uh, that the unit designation, you guys changed it uh, in part to try to dial in a little bit more to like some authenticity concerns that some people had. Now, I know that's not the only change that you guys have made, that the authenticity level of the unit has evolved over time. Oh, it's definitely evolved. I mean, when we first start out, like I said, Collect Russian Trident, 
were like the only two games in town, so everybody had, you know, the pocketed M43 tunics, and, you know, as, you know, most Soviet reenactors know, those weren't the predominant tunics for enlisted men. It was pocketless tunic, which was predominant. So once we found out these facts, you know, we made switches to that, and of course, you know, Schuster's came on the scene, and, you know, uh, some of the other vendors that are making better products than what we initially had. So it's, you know, been a work in progress. I mean, are we the best at, you know, authenticity? Absolutely not. But you know what? We're definitely not the worst. Yeah, it must be hard in a sense um, where you've got an existing body of people. Everybody's got their kit. And the kit is maybe based on what is available at the time that they bought it. But we've just seen this explosion of availability of uh, not only... Um, like actual reproductions of Soviet stuff in recent years, but also information about it. Yeah. So, and you know, you can't necessarily ask people, I don't think, to change their kit every year as more stuff becomes available and as, you know, more information becomes available. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's definitely been a slow process and not everybody bought into it initially. I mean, we definitely had some people like, well, this kit was fine when I started. Why is it not fine now? And it's like, well, we're trying to bring it, you know, to a different level and you know, I know we lost a few people because of that, and it was one of those things, but, you know, it's what I wanted. That's, I think, one of the hardest things about being a unit commander is you can't be everybody's friend. Yeah. You, you're going to rub some people the wrong way. You're going to make some rules or say some things that might hurt somebody's feelings, and, you know, it is what it is. And it's definitely not something I wanted to do. I, to this day, I don't want to be unit commander. It's just, you know, one of those things, somebody's got to do it. And we had people initially wanting rank. And it's like, that's another one of those things that bothers me in this hobby is you see so many people, I call them peacocks, is they, they want to wear the bling. They want to have the officer's uniform. They want to be the top dog, but they don't want to do the work that needs to be done. And that's the one thing in this hobby that's different than the real military is the commanders of units are the guys doing all the work for the most part. They're doing a lot of the organizing, whereas in real military, it's the lower ranks doing all the work. But, you know, I look back on it and I don't regret it. I mean, I'm getting older. I'm trying to get more help from my members, and I've got some guys that are definitely stepping up to the plate and helping things because, you know, I'm not going to be around forever, so... Well, let's talk about that work that you do. Like, what does it take to run a unit of the size uh, that the 26 is at? Uh, oh, it's definitely a lot. I mean, as far as trying to keep an online presence, I probably got my hands in, you know, too many cookie jars right now. But it's, it's one of those things. It's hard to get people to step up to the plate and manage things. It's like so... The content on the website is, you know, handled by one gentleman. I mean, I handle our Facebook page. I handle the unit members only Facebook page. Uh, I handle the treasury. And it's just because it makes it easier. I really don't live near anybody. And if I had somebody else handling our treasury, I wouldn't have access to the money to do the things we need to do. Uh, and as you know, we're building another Zem right now. And, uh, that's a whole nother thing and there's so much organizing you know getting the materials we need to build this zemlyanka and there's definitely a lot of work involved a lot more than uh i ever ever thought in my wildest dreams 
And you have to maintain like all kinds of unit equipment. Oh yeah, right? uh, that's definitely the biggest challenge. Is uh, you know we've got four troop tents and a slew of other gear and loner gear. I mean, we've probably got enough loner gear to outfit ten ten people. So <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely yeah, it's uh, taken over uh, a shed, taken over my basement. And yeah, you know, like I said, it, it's one of those things that just snowballed and. You had to get that shed just to yes, house yes. this stuff. Well, I was paying, uh, <laughs> when I met my wife, uh, she realized that I was spending $120 a month on a storage unit, and she said, that's just ridiculous, buy a shed. So, yeah, I bought a, bought a shed. That's cool. Just to house the unit's gear in. <laughs> Plus, it fills up your basement. Plus, yeah, and then it's the overflows in the basement. <laughs> and it's it's not just the troop tents, right? Because you have the fly, you've got tables, yes, tables. and you know furniture for yes. the encampment that you guys set up oh yeah <laughs> and the lanterns lanterns to light it. stoves you you name it anything that would crates anything that would be in a working camp is in my shed and basement <laughs> yeah and that's a lot of stuff oh yeah and of course you had to get a trailer to take yep, the had, stuff had to, to buy the a tra- unit bought a trailer that was one thing with nice with unit dues and i'm one thing i've been lucky is i'm a very thrifty person and i seem to stumble into some very good deals so I don't waste the unit money. <laughs> That's cool. Um, you know, what, what are the unit dues? Uh, our unit dues are $30 a year. I mean, yeah, we don't have any vehicles or anything, but we, uh, as you know, we have a, a Zemlyanka that is built, and we're in the process of building another Zemlyanka, or, you know, bunker, as a lot of people know them. You know, and we'll have a permanent area that we can go to at our site and, you know, not have to pitch tents, and we'll be able to go there you know year round which is nice and uh it, it's definitely gonna bring a lot to our our hobby in new england i think oh yeah it's already been huge for our group i mean it's just such an unbelievable asset i know i've talked about it on the podcast before this site in western massachusetts where we have this structure that we built a couple of years ago and uh We've already started on building the second one. You and I are going to be back out there again in a few days. Yes, looking forward to it. Yeah, doing more work out there. I'm excited about it. Um, but, of course, the, the work that you have to do in running a unit, it's not just um, maintaining the, the gear, and it's not, it's not just running the online aspect. There's all the interpersonal stuff. Oh, yeah, no, definitely trying to, you know, contact people and make arrangements for this and make arrangements for that and you know we have to figure out meals and things like that and you know and get the food for said meals and the supplies we need and you know even basic things that a lot of reenactors don't think twice about like water you know if I, I gotta know how many people are coming so we can have enough water on hand you know things like that and they they seem like very mundane things and minuscule, but when you're out in the field, as Chris knows, and it's 80 freaking degree day, and you're dying, and well, we're out of water because the unit commander didn't make sure there was enough water. You know that's a drop in the ball big time, and you you can't do that. And you would think that it would be easy to get people to uh, to tell you if they were going to be at the event or not. Yeah, you, you, you would definitely think. I mean, it's one of those things that it's a running joke in our group is, you know, it's just getting them to reply to me. <laughs> it's it's like all they have to do is say yes or no and make my life a lot easier. There's nothing worse in my eyes where I'm anticipating six people showing up and now I have 15. 
and I only plan food and water for six. So it, it, it gets to be aggravating at times. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny to me because on some level it almost seems like as communication has gotten easier, communication has gotten harder. Yes, it's like, especially, it's like everybody knows my phone number, but nobody calls me. Right. They always text or message me. And it's like, just pick up the phone. <laughs> just call me. And the organization level that you are faced with is vast because you not only have, you know, your unit, but then there is like the kind of affiliated subunit with the partisans. Oh, too. yeah. No, that's I forgot about the, the third partisan brigade, which is a part of us also. Yes. And they're like, how does that work? They're like semi-autonomous, but like under your control? Or yes, what? they fall under the 26th, uh, but when they're in the field, they operate on their own. And partisan impressions are, are kind of hard, I, it seems to me, because um, information is scarce, reproduction stuff is kind of scarce. Um, you know, what is your strategy for, for dealing with these partisan impressions, especially because there's so much variability? Oh, yeah. No, it's when we, and the, myself and one other member of the unit both uh, decided to put together a partisan impressions for ourselves. It's my uh, guilty pleasure for when I want to step away from uh, being the unit commander and I just want to go out in the field and worry about me. And uh, it is definitely harder to find good quality reproduction, especially uh, 1940s style clothing, but it's uh, definitely not impossible. There's a few really, really good vendors out there. Uh, a lot of people probably know of Darcy in England. They make some really good clothing, and there's also another place called Historical Emporium that makes mostly Western style, but they also make Victorian era clothing. And a lot of the Soviet civilian clothing was a few years pro you know, earlier than our stuff. So anything that was worn in Europe from the 40s, the Soviets were a few years behind as far as their clothing styles went. So Victorian clothing, some of it actually lends itself well to Soviet civilians. But yeah, we've uh, started that unit with the hope of uh, improving partisan impressions because for the most part, partisan impressions seem to be thrift store partisans sure. and not always good thrift store partisans. So, I mean, I, I've seen, I remember, you know, the, the older days of partisans when it was just like friends of reenactors who would come to the event and wear kind of whatever. And you did see a range. Some people did oh, a yeah. good job, even with very, very limited resources. They could look realistic and then other stuff was totally, you know, absurd. Yeah, it's definitely hard to find uh, reference material. There's not a lot of books out there. But if you go online, I mean, the photographs, you can find thousands and thousands of photographs of partisans to give you a good impression of what they did wear and what their kit was like. And that's part of what interests me is the array of clothing equipment that they use is phenomenal. I mean, they use a lot of German, a lot of civilian, of course, a lot of Soviet. I mean, a lot of partisans look like Soviet soldiers as far yeah. as their kit looked. Sure. It's tough in a way that makes it harder almost because um, you've got these variables based, some of them are based on like the period of war, some of them are based on where the partisans are from or where they're active, and then a lot of it almost just seems to be like local, individual No, whim, exactly. Right? Yeah, it's, hard. We, it's hard to portray a generic partisan. Like you said, I mean, certain regions, they wore different styles and, you know, different, different ethnic groups. So, yeah, that definitely uh, brings something more to the table in that respect. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a ton of stuff for you to have to be oh, yeah. thinking about. Yeah, partisan. Like I said, for me, it's a it's a guilty pleasure, and uh, I put a lot of effort into uh, my partisan kit, which I field maybe once a year <laughs> if I'm lucky. Um, so you guys host an event every year in Haydenville, Massachusetts. Yes, uh, we've been doing that since uh, we took it over. I want to say in two thousand five, two thousand six, somewhere in that time frame. It used to be run by a gentleman from the 193rd and it was funny because he was the only guy from the 193rd that ever came to that event <laughs> and then when he decided he was getting out of the hobby he contacted me since at that time we were the uh, biggest Soviet unit that was attending the event and he thought it would be natural that we ran the event so it was yet another rabbit hole I never intended to jump down but <laughs> so what year was it that the, tw the th 26th and then the third actually started uh, 2000, actually, yeah, 2005 is when the third actually started. So within within an, a year or two of that, you guys were running that yes, event. Yes, I think it was two years, so yeah, maybe 2007. And that has slightly. become the largest, I think, the largest private World War II event in New England every year? Uh, I think so. Yeah, we, there's, there used to be, back when I got into the hobby, and I know you know, is there used to be so many events between Connecticut and Vermont and you know, New York and some in Pennsylvania and it's just like so many events have just gone the wayside and you know Haydenville's still going and a uh, big part of that is we've got probably the most incredible landowner uh, that you could have in the hobby he's so supportive of us and uh, just a super nice guy he's very into the hobby and couldn't couldn't ask for a, a better host <laughs> yeah we're really lucky to have that place for sure uh, and that event. Now, what what is it like trying to run an event of that size? How, how many people came last, or how many people come in an ordinary year, do you think? Uh, we average anywhere from, uh, I want to say, 60 to 80. I think last year we had, even with COVID, 75 people. So it's it's not the biggest event, but it's you know definitely not the smallest event. And, you know, I tell you the truth, I wouldn't want it much bigger because it's... Uh, Definitely uh, a lot of work to run an event, as anybody who's ever done it knows. And yeah, it's no, no fun. So what, what do you have to do to run the event? Like, what are the, the well, things that it takes? Handling the registrations, uh, coming up with some kind of scenario, you know, safety checks, you know, authenticity. It's you know, the list goes on and on. <laughs> and the logistical stuff too, like having the the porta potties yes, there. Yes, having the porta potty there. Uh, you know the insurance, which you know the landowner takes care of that via another you know unit. Actually, the uh, unit that runs Odessa carries the insurance for Haydenville, which is another area where it shows that being good friends with uh, other units pays off. You know we have a great relationship with the unit that runs Odessa, the two seventy second, and we support their event. They support our event. As I said, they carry the insurance on the Haydenville event, so it's, you know, a one hand washes the other kind of thing, and it works for both of us. So the way the way that Haydenville works is that the authenticity standards are written in advance. Yes. And disseminated to everybody. Yes. And then we usually do, like, an inspection uh, to make sure that people have complied with this. Yeah, I mean, we hope that units that show up read you know the standards and enforce it themselves and as you know you know in the past years at Haydenville there's been a few people that tried to circumvent the standards and you know I, 
get you know telling people that they're wrong is not something I enjoy, but you know it's something you have to do. Somebody has to be the bad guy every now and then, and if you see a guy that's showing up and he's doing an SS impression and he's got a full beard, you know, sorry guy, either shave or you're not fielding. And we had to do that, and he didn't want to shave, so he didn't field. Yeah. You know, I, I feel bad that he drove a ways, but the standards are there. I mean, there's no excuse. No, you have to have some kind of standard because there's always going to be people at the event who only do the bare minimum. Exactly. And if you set the bare minimum at a place that's going to be acceptable for the other participants, then that's okay. But if the bare minimum means a total, you know, laughing stock joke thing that's going to detract from the event, um, for sure. No, and the thing is, uh, as far as authenticity goes, once you allow one thing to go, now you're opening Pandora's box. And now the next guy's going to be like, well, you let him do it last year. Why can't I do it? And it's like, no, you know, we want to go in the right direction and not step backwards. What about people who aren't members of units who want to attend the event? Uh, what is the what would be your take on that or how would oh, you handle that? We have no problem with that. But I mean, if it's somebody that's a German reenactor, I point them in the direction of you know whoever the German commander is going to be, or one of the other German units, so he can contact them, and you know that's totally up to the German side. As far as Soviets, we've always allowed it, but you know I make it clear to them, you know you need to be at our standards, or you can't attend. So it's it's at that site where that event takes place. That's where we're building these uh, structures, you know, the Zemlyanka or bunker, as I usually call it. Um, how, how was it that you guys came up with this idea to make this thing? Uh, it actually was kind of totally by mistake. And on our members only page, somebody had made just a comment that, Hey, why don't we build a bunker kind of jokingly? And the landowner said, uh, we can do that. And of course me and, uh, one of the other unit members hit right on that and we, dove in for the kill and contacted the landowner and next thing I know is a week later it was his house and we still weren't sure how interested he was but when we rolled up and went into his house and he's got topographical maps pulled up on his computer and his son's there and they're both very wide-eyed like kids at Christmas and let's do this and uh, the rest is history and we hit the ground running and next thing I know is um, learning more about building a bunker than I ever thought I would know. <laughs> so what about like the research that went into what the bunker was going to look like, what the materials were going to be? Um, you know, what was your approach to all of that stuff? Uh, well, all the approach as far as looking at what it would be is I scoured the internet. There's actually a good number of pictures on there and even some of the archaeology sites where they're digging up these old bunkers. Yeah, the roofs collapsed, but you could get an idea of how they're built and what went into them and we wanted to make it generic because it had always been our intent when we did build it that SR-195 would be involved and it would be a joint effort this way you know we could use it between the two units and there's not going to be things on the walls that denote it as Russian or denote it as German you know we can go in there either unit and like I said it, it's fairly generic but uh, as far as the materials went, uh, I'm lucky in the respect that I work for a company where we had a lot of lumber and such that they throw away. So I took advantage of that and brought as, got as much of that as I could. And you know, other stuff, we had to fell trees and get rough cut. 
So as far as the building aspect, we've been trying to keep it cheap because uh, anybody that knows anything about Newville, a lot of those bunkers cost ten to $15,000 to build. And I think our first one, yeah, it only sleeps eight people, but yeah, we paid under $1,000 and, yeah. and, and you know materials for it to build it. So I thought we did pretty good with that. This one's going to cost a little more. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have access to as much free lumber this year, but yeah, we'll make it happen. We're lucky there's that um, dilapidated barn on the yes, property. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, we uh, have a hundred year old barn that the landowner owned and it's partially collapsed and he's allowing us to cull any usable material from it. And actually the entire roof structure of the previous uh, bunker was built with material from said barn. So that's definitely helped us. It's like an absolute dream scenario, isn't it? Oh, yeah. No, I mean... So, so works out so well. Just uh, going in there and knowing all the material that's in there is material even before World War II, and the door to access it is actually a 100-year-old barn door. It's like, you know, history is continuing to live through that bunker, and it's, it's just a cool place to me. I, I love going there. Every time I go there, it just makes me smile. I could be in the worst mood in the world, and... I pull into Haydenville, and uh, it's just my happy place. It's become like a really cool complex where there's the the bunker that we built. You guys built a latrine. Yes. Now we're building the second bunker. Yes, and then we're going to build a permanent machine gun nest, and you know, it it's definitely going to be its own little thing. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not going to be Newville, but you know, it's going to be our own little slice of heaven in Western Massachusetts. Yeah, close by, very cool. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about like how you guys handle uh, rank and awards in your unit. Um, as far as rank goes, we I've been faulted for it by some other some other groups because we have no officer. I mean, our highest rank is Starshena, which is a uh, sergeant major. But I wanted to keep the rank structure realistic. I, I've seen way too many units in my days in the hobby where they have four guys and one of the guys is a major. And that's just totally unrealistic to me. And rank in our group is just awarded for what you do. If you're somebody that only shows up twice a year and doesn't bring a lot to the table, you're going to be a private for probably the whole time you're a reenactor. But if you're somebody that's a go-getter, so it's based on merit, based on you know what you bring to the table for the unit. And as far as awards, uh, we've actually gotten away from that. Uh, we did have an awards structure for a number of events you, you know, went to. You would get set award, and but more and more, a lot of our guys aren't wearing awards just because. Uh, I don't know. It, we don't want to demean the veterans or the people that won the actual awards, and I thought it was getting overdone. Yeah, maybe you know. I think generally speaking. Awards are overrepresented in exactly. World War II reenacting. I mean, yes, the Soviets did like to proudly wear their awards, and some of our, our unit members do wear some awards, but we, we try not to overdo it. I mean, we do have a basic award structure, but really we haven't used it in years. <laughs> you guys do a lot of public display events, and I know that um, among the people who you've interacted with at these events have been a lot of veterans of the post-war Red Army and yes. maybe some World War II veterans too. You yeah, know? We've, we've met a lot of veterans World War II, post-war, and I, I will say that, you know, people of Russian descent really like what we're doing and they're very enthusiastic. 
I mean, we've had Russian news crews come to events just to see what we're doing. And we've become friends with some of these Russian news crews and done some really interesting things, you know, as a result of being friends with these people. That's cool. Yeah, you've had an opportunity to participate, uh, or your unit has had an opportunity to participate in a bunch of cultural stuff, right? Like you do the, you've done a, a Russian festival, uh, and also at one point uh, something with like the consulate, right? Yes, they went down to the uh, Russian consulate uh, some years back for the May Day celebration, and they had a lot of World War II veterans, and the last surviving Belsky brother was even there. Wow. And people remember the movie Defiance. Uh, he was the youngest Belsky, and he was a partisan. But you know, we had a, we sent a contingent down there as an honor guard. And one of the funny stories is the veterans really didn't know how to approach when they saw these Americans dressed up as Soviets. And one of them finally sheepishly walked over to one of our guys and said, uh, "Are you guys actors? Are you paid to be here?" And he proceeded to tell them, "No, you know, we're reenactors, and you know, we were invited here." and the vet was kind of confused at first, and then he explained to him what reenacting is. And after that, the veterans were very open to them, and uh, I guess the vodka really, really flowed. I bet. And <laughs> none, none of my guys uh, were doing very good at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so you have been reenacting Soviet probably longer than, you know, 90 five or 99 percent of the people that do world war ii soviet reenacting in like the eastern part of the united states yeah at least uh 15 years now so (laughs) um and it has just changed so much i gotta think in that period of time oh yeah no i mean the authenticity yeah can't even talk the authenticity levels have definitely uh improved vastly the number of units i mean when we started like i said there was a loose-knit group that called themselves the caught off guards or zero organized units in the northeast and now, you know, we have down below us, we have the Ninth Guards, who we're good friends with. Uh, they're a really good Soviet unit, and they're definitely improving their impression and their numbers. Uh, at Odessa this past year, we're, we're really good. Just a group, great group of guys. You know, we've got the 99th out of Western New York and the uh, 13th Guards also out of New England. So we've definitely seen some units popping up, and we've try to be real supportive to all these units. I mean, that's another thing in this hobby that puzzles me is groups not cooperating with each other. There's enough recruits out there for everybody. And, you know, I have zero problem steering somebody who might be a better fit for another unit because of where he's located to another unit. You know, that's how you make the hobby grow. You know, trying to fight amongst each other and pick over people like vultures. It just makes zero sense to me. Sure. Uh, you know, my experience in reenacting is pretty much limited to the region where we do events. Uh, but it's been pretty remarkable to see what I would call a pretty steep decline in the numbers of GI reenactors. Oh, yeah. Now, that blows my mind. I mean, I know there was a GI unit in the Northeast that was huge. I mean, when I did German and they came to the field, I mean, they brought vehicles, machine guns. I mean, they had heavy weapons section, and they had so many guys. And, and now you see it's the, the numbers turn out, and there's hardly any of them. And it's just like, where did they all go? Yeah, and, and then the counterpart to that is that Soviet was this tiny niche side yes. thing, and now is this like dominant World then, War II reenacting force. Now we're filling the void, and you know, a lot of it has to do with just you know, I, I think that 
you know, the fact that we try to be friendly, and most of the other Soviet units are the same way that I, you know, mentioned. They are all very open to other people, and they aren't standoffish. They don't bring attitudes to the table, and I think a lot of people see that, and it appeals to them. You know, who wants to be in a hobby where you've got just standoffish people, and they're angry at other groups for no good reason, and, you know, it, it's supposed to be fun. That's the bottom line, is we want to have a good time. Sure. We want to do it right, but we want to have a good time. Um, so you and I were both at an event a few weeks ago in Odessa, New York, um, that was like a tactical, you know, we were on opposite sides of the battlefield for that one. Um, I thought that was a, an awesome event. Oh, I, had a, I, I had a great time. It was definitely fantastic. I mean, the weather was beautiful. I mean, it had finally rained late Saturday night, which didn't bother me, but... I, you know, seeing armor there at an Ost, an Ost front event for the first time since I've gone there was pretty incredible. And, I mean, the turnout on the German side was very impressive. I mean, they had 60-plus plus armor, motorcycles, cubal wagons, and we were heavily outnumbered, heavily outgunned. But at the end of the day, they all, you know, told us what a great time they had and that we were aggressive and we kept fighting the whole time and they were impressed with that and it was definitely a lot of fun i i was exhausted because you know fighting a retreat all day long up a hill was yeah tough, what was it? it was like two to one odds against you guys easily plus, maybe three to one plus they had a tank <laughs> right um it'll be interesting i think to see what happens with that event with uh with the stalingrad site that the factory site where the Stalingrad event happened isn't going to be in use anymore. And that event did generate so much hype for Eastern Front reenacting in general. You know, so maybe that event will pick up some. Maybe even Haydenville will. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping. And also, uh, I know it was supposed to happen this year. Uh, our regiment in Ohio was going to start up the Newville Ostfront event again. But because of COVID, it didn't happen. And we're hoping that in 2022 that Newville will once once again be on the O's front schedule and uh, I think that event could definitely be huge and 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 fill some of the vacuum of, of events that have gone away. Yeah, let's talk about COVID a little bit. Um, how did it affect your unit? Oh, it's definitely uh, affected our numbers. I mean, this past Odessa, even though it was one of the best Odessas I've been at in recent memory, I mean, we had four guys. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I mean, definitely in a unit as large as us, uh, have just four guys turn out. It was kind of a letdown for me. I, when I rolled out to the event, I wasn't really into it, but you know what? It was the right four people that showed up and I had a fantastic time and yeah, we made the best of it. And a lot of it is like you said, because of COVID people are afraid of it and I, I get it. You know, it's people's health and you know, it, what, what can you say? I mean, somebody's worried about their health. You, I, you can't fault them. Sure. And everybody has their own comfort level. I mean, I've been working through the whole thing, and it, I really don't give it a second thought. But, you know, that's me. <laughs> you guys were still able to do events, but mostly smaller scale. Oh, yeah. And... No, we've done a few training events, as you know, and a few things at the Zem, but it's all been on a smaller level than we're used to, and more low-key. I mean, this coming weekend, the, uh, building the second bunker is probably going to be the biggest event we do so far this year. 
Um, and we were supposed to do that work. Originally, we were slated to do that last year, and that got disrupted yes, because yep. of this thing. Yeah, the other bunker took longer to finish because of all the things that happened. And like you said, we were supposed to break ground last year on bunker two, but yeah, it is what it is. You got to roll with it. And it's just uh, another one of those fun things about being a unit commander. Things don't always go the way you want to, and you have to learn to adjust. <laughs> sure. What do you think our work schedule is going to be on this uh, second bunker? You think we're going to do work every month on it, maybe? Uh, I I would hope. It's just a matter of me with my schedule. Uh, I have a really odd work schedule. So, I mean, if I knew that there were people that would take over for me not being there, then they could do it. We could do it every month. It's, you know, that's one of those things we'll discuss this coming weekend and try to make arrangements to, you know, keep it going forward because I would definitely love to see it completed this year. Yeah. And there's no reason it can't be completed this year. I hope it is. It would be so great to be able to go into this winter. Oh, exactly. Um, with two of them, it's winter. just, just going to open up a lot more opportunity and windows for uh, both our groups. Well, what do you, what's your prediction on when, you know, when COVID is finally over when it, or as over as it's going to get, right? Whatever is going to happen. Um, what do you think reenactment is going to look like? Is it going to be bigger? Is it going to be smaller? I, I, if I had to guess, I think it's going to be bigger. And do I think it's going to come roaring right back? No. It's going to be like baby steps. People are going to put their f foot in the pool, see if the water's warm enough. You know, it's going to take a little while before the numbers jump right back up. But uh, I'm hoping by later this year that things get more back to normal. I hope so, too. And I think 2022 is definitely going to be a, a very good year for the hobby because I think that everybody's just going to be itching to do events. I hope so. All right. Well, that's about all the time we've got, Mike. I uh, can't thank you enough for coming on, This, ah. uh, especially coming to the uh, mansion uh, to be here in person and do this. This ah. is really nice of you. Thanks for having me. I mean, the mansion's beautiful. It was Thanks. well worth the drive. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, I guess... Uh, to everybody out there, thanks for tuning in. And uh, to Mike and to everybody, I will see you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Feller Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com. That is german-ww2.com, uh, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020 that is PODCAST2020 at checkout Once again, uh, and as always thanks to Mike, aka Retroman for editing this podcast Thanks Mike